Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, well, I wanted to do a quick review of last week. Uh, We talked about two aspects of our union with Christ, and those were pretty big ones, wouldn't you say? Our justification and our sanctification. And what we said is that these things do not flow out of one another. Okay? To do so would be to uh, encourage error, I believe. But instead, they flow out and they grow out of that beautiful garden of our union with Christ. So, why is it important not to overlap, shall we say, our, our justification with sanctification? Why is that important not to do? Yes, justification is one time and sanctification is a process. Anyone else? It can lead to error because our justification is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, and that not of ourselves. We have nothing on which to boast, not that we do in sanctification either. But if we overlap our sanctification, or if we say that sanctification is a part of our justification, what are we adding to our justification? We're adding works to it. And this has been a grave error even within the Reformed and and Christian church throughout the ages. So we want to stay away from that. We want to know that they're both rooted in our union with Christ and not out of each other. On the other hand, what is the, the problem with adding or, or, or saying our justification is the same or kind of overlapping it with our sanctification, which is entirely separate. What's, what's the error that we can fall into there? Darren said, let go and let God. So it can kind of lead to a passivity, okay? And I think the let go and let God is kind of a quick fix, isn't it? Is our sanctification easy? Is there a quick fix to our sanctification? No, there's not. And so when we overlap our justification with our sanctification, it can kind of be a quick fix. Or we can fall into error, such as something called carnal Christianity, saying that I'm justified and I'm okay. I'm eternally secure because of what Christ has done. Well, there is some element of truth to that, but the proof of that is our sanctification. And both of those flow up out of our union with Christ. And so that is the significance and the reason we're taking a few weeks to say it of the importance of our union with Christ. J.C. Ryle, I think, had some helpful words somewhere. Wow, this is... I wonder if I got it backwards. Bear with me just a second. Hang on. Okay, maybe I, did, maybe I skipped the J.C. Ryle uh, comment here, so I'll just read it to you. How's that? J.C. Ryle said this. 
Okay, both justification and sanctification are a part of that great work of salvation which Christ has undertaken on behalf of his people. Christ is the fountain of life from which pardon and holiness both flow. So that's, again, they don't flow out of one another. The root of each of these is Christ. And so I argue that it is important to keep them separate. So that is just a quick review of last week and and one of the things that you may have seen. And if you saw it and you're cheating, that's okay. But what is a good verse that kind of helps us to keep those separate? There's, There's many, but and you can't read my mind because I'm thinking of one, but what would be a good verse that helps us to keep those two songs playing, grace and holiness, separate? See, no one can read my mind. I like that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, Good. That song of grace completely plays in our head because it's not of us. All right, I'm going to go for this one. How about Titus 2:11 through 14? For the grace of God has appeared. So we hear that song playing in our head. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But then what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's some more grace we're going to hear. Who gave himself up for us. Why? To redeem us from all, un, uh, from all lawlessness and to purify for us a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. So both are necessary for our, yeah, they're both necessary. So um, anyway, I hope you're re- really reconsidering the impact of what our union with Christ does for us, not only now, for, but for all of eternity. Uh, this morning, you can probably see it on the top of your handout, but we're going to look at the fact that we have a new identity in Christ Jesus. And I know I mentioned in, in my own personal testimony that... It was Romans 6 that really um, God used to awaken me to the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of Christ. And I, I contribute that to my actual conversion to Christ is to see this. And this is the verse that I remember reading and just kind of scratching my head and going, wow, that's that's." I'd, I'd never seen that in 30 years. I'd never seen that. So it says, uh, in, in the King James Version, it says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I know that the, quote, salvation that I had for a whole number of years did not do that for me, that henceforth we should not serve sin, because I sure served it well, I promise you that. But it was whenever I, I recognized the fact of this planting together, I kind of looked up a commentary and saw something about union with Christ, had never heard that in my life, 
But that was when God really changed me, is when I saw that. So, Romans 6 is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at one aspect of Romans 6, and we're going to stir up a little bit of controversy. That's kind of fun on a Christmas Eve, isn't it? But anyway, um, Romans 6 is not easy. That is one thing I will say, is it's not easy. Um, in the preface to his lecture on Romans 6, the, uh, the venerable Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers had this to say. So this is in the preface to his lecture about Romans 6. He said, We know not a single theme in the whole compass of Christianity on which there rests to the natural discernment a cloud of thicker obscurity than that which relates to the origin and growth of a believer's holiness. So he's referring to Romans 6 as being that origin. But he says that there's a thick cloud of obscurity. Well, we hope to break up the cloud a little bit today and to be able to see it. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones focused more on, um, on Romans, I think, than any 20th century pastor that I know of. In fact, the Banner of Truth put out a 14-volume set of sermons just on Romans alone. But for a number of years, he would not preach on, on Romans. And he was confronted by um, another minister friend of his and said, when are you going to do a series through Romans? And he said, as soon as I understand chapter 6, that's when I'll do it. So this is what we're up against today. Um, but drawing from Martin Lloyd-Jones and Sinclair Ferguson and John Murray, we're going to, to kind of take a, a nice overview here of that. So... The verse we're going to look at predominantly is going to be uh, Romans 6, 1 through 4, our union with Christ and how that leads to a new identity in Christ. So I'm going to read this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been buried or baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, you probably saw me flipping through some of those slides earlier because I didn't know what I was doing here. But can somebody tell me the Christian act or rite that most clearly pictures our union with Christ and what happens to us at our union with Christ? Say it louder. Baptism. This right here. Our baptism. So my emphasis this morning will be on that picture. Okay? And it will be most specifically on verse 3. So verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? So do you not know that all of us have, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in, into his death? But now here's where the controversy kind of gets started. So I just read to you Romans 6, 1 through 4. And I'm saying that baptism is this picture. What controversy do you think might be appearing before us? 
Baptismal regeneration. Okay. Yeah. That could be that could be extracted from here and has been throughout church history. Uh, Darren wants to know if there's a controversy that we read. Well, I'm, all I'm saying is that there, there can be a controversy in what we just read. Okay. I love this. Nobody can read my mind. <laughs> yes. Okay, so are you saying that some people would read that and say it's talking about literal water baptism? Yes. Right. There lies the controversy. Is, is this referring to our spiritual baptism? Or is this referring to our water baptism? Any, any thoughts? That's the answer. Let's move on. You know, um, Lloyd-Jones was a strong advocate that this was our spiritual baptism. In fact, he says it like this. He said, sorry about that. He said, indeed, I go further and suggest that to argue that the apostle has water baptism in his mind in any shape or form here is to give a prominence to baptism that the apostle Paul never intends to give it. The conclusion there at which I arrive is that baptism by water is not in the mind of the apostle at all, Uh, In these two verses, instead, it is the baptism wrought by the Spirit. Okay, now, I have no idea if I will be up for church discipline if I go a little against the good doctor. I hope not. But John Murray and Sinclair Ferguson both affirm that this is water baptism, so we've got Okay, so here's what John Murray had to say about this uh, in his commentary on Romans. He said, The appeal is to their knowledge of the identification involved in baptism. And he's referring to water baptism here. It is clear that Paul is eliciting from baptism the argument particularly relevant to the proposition that the believer died to sin and is to the effect that the ordinance of baptism signifies union with Christ in his death. So, little, little, hmm. But I'm going to say, I'm going to side with you, Dan. I'm going to say, yes. I'm going to say it's both and. And uh, I will also give a reason why I think it's a both and is because I don't, this is me, this is Will, I didn't read this anywhere, but I don't see the, how it's helpful to separate them. I don't see any benefit of separating them. Darren. So, yes, he's got water baptism in mind, but that is not what he's talking about. He has water baptism in mind, but that's not what he's talking about. I'm going to say that that's part of it. That's why I say it's both. So we're going to actually extract that part of it. We're going to talk about our water baptism and our union with Christ today. Okay? So if I'm wrong... Yes, sir, Mike. Yes, 
See, the controversy's already started, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, sir, Ben. To both and, right? Right. Yeah, well said. For me, the phrase in verse 4, so we too might walk in newness of life. Mm -hmm. When does that happen? I was not baptized till several years after I was saved, and I can tell you that I started living a different life before I was ever immersed in the water. So, you know, if you're talking about when you start walking in newness of life, mm -hmm. because of that identification with Christ, that's at salvation. Yeah, thanks for that. Adding to the controversy. Sure. <laughs> she was saying that walking in newness of life didn't, for her did not occur at her water baptism in verse 4. It was before that, when she was actually renewed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I am not saying that, by the way. I'm not saying that the physical act of baptism is what unites us to Christ. It's just simply a picture of it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes, Darren. Is there any other illustration of that word, baptism, that could be in, in his mind other than water? You know what I mean? What, what is, other illustration could it be? I don't know. You know what I mean? Not really. Mm -hmm. And everybody was familiar with water baptism. That had been going on, like, forever. Yeah. You know, right. for different reasons. Right. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and move on and just say I wanted to lay that foundation that it is controversial, what I'm saying. There can be some controversy. I think we... Uh, alleviate ourselves of that controversy by saying it's both kind of 
what Ben was sharing with us from the Westminster Confession, that it is a picture of what really has happened to the believer. This is, this is what has happened. We have been baptized, spiritually baptized into Christ, therefore united with him, and our water baptism is a picture of that. So I'm going with the both and, but I'm going to be looking more at our, at our water baptism and what it does for us. And uh, as I'm sitting here thinking, there was a, there was a movie back in the 80s uh, starring Robert Duvall. I think he actually won an Academy Award for it called Tender Mercies. Don't know if anybody's ever seen it, but he was uh, just this washed up country music singer. And he found some redemption in this small town, um, married, a, I think she was a widow, and she had a little boy. And one of the, the prevailing themes in there was that the mom was a church-going, God-fearing person, and she always wanted the little boy to get baptized. And so that was, a, that was a recurring theme, but at the end of the movie, they ended up both getting baptized, meaning Robert Duvall's character and the little boy. And so they're driving home, and the little boy looks at Robert Duvall, and he says, you feel any different? And he goes, not yet. So he's expecting something there. What my hope for everyone today is that you can look back at your water baptism and see it as something special, something very, very important, and what it actually testifies. Okay? So I wanted to lay that as a foundation. So water baptism is the action by which we were publicly named for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where do we find that? What passage, in what passage do we find that? Exactly, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, and we also see that we are publicly declaring that we are united to Christ. In, in Acts, it actually uses the phrase, baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, on, I believe, three different occasions in there. But here's an example, is in uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, they said, they were all pricked at their heart and said, what shall we do? And so Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, there's even controversy in there, isn't there? So baptism all kind of has a a little bit of a controversy to it, but we're not going to tap into that at all. I'm just trying to say that we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here it says we're baptized in the name of Christ. Okay, So to avoid controversy... I went to the ESV study Bible and pulled out its notes, and it said this, To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is not different from being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Even though different words are used in Acts, the meaning is the same because in biblical usage, a person's name represents the person's character. Everything that is true about the person. And can we say that there's anything different about the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No, we we can't. That controversy is over. (laughs) Gotcha, yeah. 
Instead of uh, simply declaring publicly, though, well, let, let me ask this question. What is baptism? What is it, what is it a declaration of? That we belong to Christ. Anyone else? Zane. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Public display of obedience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, the, the, the standard answer that, that I think we, we all hear in evangelical circles is that it is a, it is a public testimony of, of my faith. Okay, so it speaks of my faith. And what I want to argue this morning is that it's more than that. That it is, that it is, a, that it is a public testimony of, to my faith. So all that Christ has accomplished for me in union with Christ, this is publicly declaring that. That's the argument that I'm going to make this morning. Okay. So it declares, first of all, that we have a new name. We've been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a new name. Now, in fact, I'll, I'll even go farther and to say that baptism is... One aspect of it is that it is a naming ceremony. It's a naming ceremony. Now, all of us have a naming ceremony of sorts, right? When a child is born, we've picked out usually a first name, a middle name, and given them our surname, right? And when I was born, my parents named me William Orlando Baumberger. Now, other than giving me a lot of syllables and teaching me how to fight at an early age, what did that, what did that name do? What did that do? Did I do that? Okay. Darren. It identified me. It told me who I was, right? It told me to whom I belonged. Yes, Ben. Possibly. Uh, you're kind of going. Well, I, I probably won't go there, but. I think that there is the identification in 1 Corinthians 10, too. Paul, again, talks to the Corinthians, and he talks about how people were identified with Moses. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, into the fire. But he goes on in that passage to show that they were not all true Israel, because some of them. Uh, so the identification that we've talked about so far and the passages you put up have shown a specific work of God's grace prior to the act of baptism. And yes, we are identified with Christ in that act of baptism, but it is that previous work of God's Spirit bringing us to himself, converting us, so that, like Paul says in Romans 6 passage, we know that there is an effect upon our mind 
Yes. Thank you for that. Amen. Amen to that. But anyway, so my naming ceremony, when I was named, gave me an identity. It told me who I belonged to. And it also taught me, told me, it tells me how I'm expected to live. Right? In, in the same way, in the same way, I think that we can say the same thing about the, what our baptism pictures. It pictures a new identity. It pictures to whom we belong. And it pictures how then shall we live. Okay? So when you think back to your water baptism, that's what the picture is. Okay? Sinclair Ferguson, um, I'm sorry. Okay, I missed that slide too. Sorry about that. But Sinclair Ferguson says this, Our baptism speaks not so much about faith, but to it. Okay, so it's not a declaration of I have believed, but it's a declaration of what Christ has accomplished, and it is speaking to that. So it says this, he, he quotes, Look what your baptism pictures. Listen to what your baptism says. And as faith takes hold of its message, remember what it tells you about who you are in union with Christ. So that is my claim this morning, is that our baptism speaks to our faith and not of our faith. And our baptism gives us a new identity, and it names us in the name of Christ. That is what it pictures. Okay? So is everyone with me so far? Kind of feel like we've got some sort of untethered thoughts here. We good? Exactly. Very good. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. All right. So not only in this passage of Romans 6 does it say we have a new name, that we have a new name, but we also live in a new realm. We live in a new realm. Okay. 6, one and 2 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is coming out of chapter 5, having drawn a line of delineation between our identity in Adam and our identity in Christ. So that's where chapter 6 actually continues. So here, is, here was our identity in Adam, as we see in in uh, chapter 5. This is from verse 18. So in Adam, what is our destiny? What is our status? Condemnation. But in Christ, justification in life. In Adam, verse 19, many were made sinners. But in Christ, many were made righteous. In Adam, 
Death is our wages of sin. But in Christ, eternal life on the merits based um, of, of the merits of Jesus Christ himself. So Paul is coming out of this statement and saying, you've been identified now, no longer with Adam, but now you're identified with Christ. You have a new name. But not only that, we have a new realm. So we fast forward uh, to verses 1 and 2. And what's Paul addressing here is, I guess at the time, you know, we probably don't see it as much nowadays that people think, well, uh, I can exalt grace by sinning more. I don't know anybody who's ever said that, but evidently at the time that probably was something that Paul had to address. And if you think about it, he gets pretty emotional, doesn't he, in his reply. Now, I don't think the ESV really, really grasps the full emotion that Paul has. I mean, he says, it says, by no means, you know, by no means, kind of, kind of upper middle class, you know, by no means. The NAS gets a little better. It says, may it never be. But what's the King James say? It says, God forbid, God forbid that you would live like this. Don't you know who you are in Christ, don't you know that you were once in Adam? Now you're in Christ. God forbid that you should continue to live in sin. We could even be a little, a little more modern and say, no way. No way. So Paul seemingly gives this emotional response here. God forbid. And, uh, you know, emotion is... Is never a good way to live the Christian life, but sometimes emotion is a part of, of the Christian life, especially as we are combating error. I think it's okay to be a little emotional about that, for sure. But Paul isn't just emotional either, okay? He's not. He's just like, no way, God forbid, by no means. He's also very logical, and I want you to follow the logic of what he's saying. So, Hey, there's my slide that I couldn't find. I'm blaming it on the program. I'm blaming it on, not me. I couldn't have done something like that. Um, but he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? There's his logic right there. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, that's a, that's a tough passage, isn't it? That's why I think Lloyd-Jones took a little while before he actually preached through it. Does everybody hear feel like you've died to sin? Do you? Do you? But you have. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is basically saying that if we understood the benefits of our naming ceremony to whom we've been named, it tells us who we are, to whom we belong, and how we're expected to live, we would be able to see how really outlandish and contradictory it would be to continue to live in the old way. Here's, here's my quote of, of Sinclair Ferguson that just kind of helps us with that. Baptism tells faith that the old life in Adam is gone. The old life in Adam is gone. 
New life in Christ has begun. Well, how does this happen? It is that we are no longer under sin's dominion. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. You cannot have died to something and still live in it. That isn't logical. That's the, the, the law or the principle of non-contradiction. You can't be two places at once, can you? You can't. It is impossible. So our union with Christ tells us that we're no longer, that, that we are not only in Christ's people, but we are those who have died to sin people. And there is not some separate category of those who continue in sin people. Again, God forbid. It is both a contradiction and, a, and it is also spiritual amnesia as to our identity in union with Jesus Christ. Sometimes the discipline that we need for living the Christian life isn't so much, you know, here the new year is and we're probably all thinking of, of new resolutions for the year, right? What are some resolutions maybe you have? Read the Bible through. Pray a little extra, a little better on family worship, things like that. Sometimes the discipline that we really need is to just stop and remind ourselves, who am I? Into whose name have I been baptized? What, what are the benefits of that new name, that new identity? Sometimes I believe we need to do that. John Murray actually calls this baptism or this... this um, being dead to sin in the new realm. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He calls it this. He calls it our redemptive emancipation proclamation. You have been set free because of who you are in Jesus Christ. So Paul here is, when it's talking about death, we have died to sin. He's not talking about a process. He's talking about an event. We have died to sin. The rule and reign the dominion of sin, which is our position in Adam, is brought to an end. And Lloyd-Jones actually uses this kind of illustration from, from one of his sermons on this. He, he talks about uh, a man who, who dwelled in a field on one side of the road. And on that side of the road, that field was, was ruled by sin and by Satan. But miraculously, he was transferred to the other side of the road, and, and this new field where Christ ruled and righteousness ruled. And although Satan calls and tempts from across the street, it has no power over him. And so Lloyd-Jones would say, anybody who listens to this side of the field is a fool. You no longer live there. You dwell here. You dwell in a new realm. So to simplify this, this new realm... I wanted to, to kind of memorize it this way, and maybe some, most of you are probably familiar with this, but, but there are three P's that are the answer here. So what does justification remove regarding sin that starts with a P? Penalty. The penalty. Justification removes the penalty of our sin. Sanctification removes the, the power of sin. And then our glorification will remove the the presence of sin. Hallelujah.
Look forward to that day. So obviously here, we're not talking about the removal of the presence of sin. We're we're talking about the removal of its power over the Christian life. All right, so this is my last point. I just have a few minutes. So how does this teaching help us? What does it mean that I have been relieved of the power of sin? What does that mean? Well, it gives us a new identity. It gives us a new, quote-unquote, self-image, said Sinclair Ferguson. It is true that the pursuit of self-image can be a bondage all uh, all of its own self. But a self-image given to us by the gospel of Christ is worth understanding. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we are no longer, if we are in Christ and our baptism tells us this, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Positionally. So let me give you one, one more illustration here. There was a, there's, a, there's a professional golfer from South Korea, and I can't think of his name. It's like Bang Soon. I can't remember his name, to be honest with you. But, um, but I do remember the story is, is that uh, here he was a successful golfer on the PGA Tour. He'd actually won a tournament. But the South Korean government said that he had to serve in the military for two years. That was his commitment. So no matter what measure of success he could plead for, he still had to, to do that. He had to do that commitment. I believe just a month or two, he, he actually had finished his duty and now was um, rejoining the PGA Tour. Now, what if before they served him those papers, he became an American citizen? What would happen then? Well, does that take away the fact that he was born South Korean? No, no, it doesn't take that away at all. But what it does is it puts him under a new authority. And that's a very real picture of what has happened to us. He could say, you know what? I may have been born South Korean, but I'm no longer South Korean. I'm now American, and I live under their rule and their authority. In a very real way, that's our identity in Christ does that for us. All right, so in summary, what our baptism says to us and our faith is is this. And I think I have this on your handout. It says this. Number one, I am no longer the person that I was in Adam. I am a new person in Jesus Christ. Number two, in Christ I am someone who has died to the dominion of sin and been raised to new life. Number three, in Christ, I am someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and been transferred into the kingdom of God. So this is what we have to consider. And, and I, know, I know Pastor Ernie gave us some homework to, to memorize. I put on a note card last week, uh, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. But this would be your homework, although I'm not really going to grade you on it. But I would encourage everybody to read Romans 6.11, to memorize it, and to tell yourself this over and over and over again. You must, uh, must consider yourselves dead to sin on this side of the road and alive to God in Jesus Christ. 
You know, John Owens once said, John Owen once said that there are two basic issues that a minister of the gospel has to deal with. The first one is evangelistic. The first thing he needs to do is to tell those who are not in Christ that they live in darkness. That's a part of a minister's duty. Then he says the second part is to tell believers that you no longer live there. You live over here. Um, you know, it was said of Martin Luther that when he was tempted to sin, he, would, he, had a, he had a phrase. Does anybody know this? I can't pronounce it. I don't know Latin, but he said, Baptizitus sum, which means this. It means, I am baptized. So he said this. It said that he wrote that in chalk on his desk, and he reminded himself of that every time he was tempted to sin. He had a new name, a new identity, and a new realm in which he lived. And he would speak of that baptism. He would say, I am baptized. So again, our baptism, no regenerating effects. We know that. It has no salvific nature to it at all. But what it does is it points to our faith. It points to our faith what has happened to us. So, do you understand your baptism? And do you know that you are in Christ? That's the question. I think we're out of time pretty much. I have a question or two. Does anybody have a question or a comment? All right, I found this cute little meme here. Remember that. All right, let's pray. Father, we know the Christian life is not one that is easy. It's not one that is passive. But yet you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And one of those things or a couple of those things, are that you've, you've given us a new name and you've put us in a new realm whereby we can obey Christ, whereby we can say that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us all to recognize that, that our lives would grow more and more in holiness and in love in submission to Jesus Christ. And I pray that um, those thoughts would, would continue as we, we go into worship and we praise this great and glorious King this morning. I pray that you would help us from, from distractions of, of holiday events and help us to worship you well this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.